We are in Champions League, man. That was my Dilly din, dilly dong, come on. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. This is the Modern Soccer Coach Podcast with Gary Kearney. Hello and welcome to the first Modern Soccer Coach Podcast. My name is Gary Kearney. So what I'm doing with these podcasts is just to try and obviously add some content on the coaching side and spark a little bit of conversation with coaches past and present and and people who have different types of experiences under different types of coaches, playing backgrounds, all that good stuff. So a bit of enjoyment, a bit of fun and try to get people involved from all over the world. So my first guest is John Curtis. So John grew up in the famous Manchester United youth system In the 90s, he went on to make 14 first-team appearances between 1997 and 2000. Um, During that time, obviously, as you're aware, Manchester United were pretty dominant and the treble winning team in in 1999. John moved on in 2000 and then had a solid career in England. Um, Barnsley, Blackburn, Leicester, Forest, Portsmouth, and then had a spell in Australia. So he's now a technical director with the New York Club Soccer League, uh, also has a UFA license. Um, as you would expect, John has a has a lot of experience in the game as a player and as a coach. So why did I choose John? Uh, simple, really, two reasons. First of all, coaches. We're talking a lot about culture in today's day and age. It's probably the most, the big, the hottest topic around. Um, and I really want to see what culture you know was like. And how it was shaped in a different type of of uh, a generation with Alex Ferguson and and that Manchester United team with the leadership and people like Roy Keane, people like David Beckham, people like Paul Scholes, Ryan Giggs. How was it shaped? And then, you know, how does working under one of the greatest coaches of all time and Alex Ferguson? How does that shape you as a person, as a player, and then as a coach? So we'll get to it. As you can expect, John was, was very generous with his time and, and is uh, very, very honest and straightforward and has some, some great insight for all coaches. So enjoy. And here it is. Growing up with, you know, as, even as a United fan myself, um, you know, the youth teams and, and that culture was something that, you know, it's, it's got to be unbelievable um, being involved and experiencing that growing up. But when you're moving through the ranks as a player, what was what remained consistent every year, regardless of who you were playing alongside or who the coach was? Um, everything, I'd say. I think the continuity was um, very much a part of the success of the club. Um, everybody knew what was required from the you know, pre-youth teams, you know, I'm talking like schoolboy teams right the way up, the um, the philosophy, the work ethic, um, the way that things were supposed to be done in the Manchester United way was made clear to everybody. Everybody knew what was required and um, it made it very, very simple to progress because there, there wasn't any issues 
um, with differences between UT managers, differences in philosophy or anything. It was all consistent right across the board. Mm-hmm. And that made it easier as a player just to focus then and go through. You, you kind of had a, had a clear idea of what you needed to, to do to get to the next one and the next one? 100%. It was, um, it was very, very obvious. And, I, you know, people talk about Barcelona now um, and they talk about the style of play. I don't think... United had that style of play that was rigid and you had to do things this certain way. It wasn't about playing. It was about far more than that. It was about Manchester United as a club. It was about the history and culture of of the club at that time. Um, And you could argue that maybe a little bit of that has gone. with the with the wholesale changes that come in after Sir Alex Ferguson left, mm-hmm. um, and it, I think it took a little bit of time, even when he was there, to to install that philosophy um, and 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 the values that the club had right the way through it, because he literally did it from top to bottom, mm-hmm. and it took him a long time to do it, um, and he maintained it for. a for a very long time, and that's that's the reason for you know why he had as much success as he did, or certainly one of the reasons why he had a lot of the successes that he did have. So let's let's talk about Sir Alex Ferguson then, and it, you know, as a leader, to someone to to have such a big, big, and it might maybe it's a maybe it can't be done today, or it certainly doesn't look like it's been done today in many academies. But for a manager to have such a hold. Um, such a long-term hold on an academy system. How did he do that without... I mean, he wasn't taking sessions there, I, I assume, or maybe he was. Nobody knew everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. It's funny because my, my digs were overlooking the car park at the training ground. Um, and I'd get up in the morning like you do for a pee at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. You peer out the window. There's one car in the car park. It's, it's the gaffer's big murk sat there nobody else is even there the guy was unbelievable he he ran the club from top to bottom you know you talk about knowing the cleaners and everything like that he knew everything um obviously the first team stuff was was there but the entire academy the entire scouting network um and he got people in place that were still there when I was applying for my visas to come to the US and I was going back for references and stuff. It was the same guys and, I, and um, I'd been left, the, you know, I'd had 15 year playing career and left when I'd been there for a decade and it was still exactly the same people who were, who were you know, veteran status even when I was there mm-hmm. um, because the people, people who he surrounded himself with were loyal to him mm-hmm. um, and his ways and the, and that's what he demanded. You, you, we've seen that with players who have tried to cross him and, you know, two minutes later, they're out the door. Um, if you were loyal to Sir Alex Ferguson, he would look after you um, and, and go, you know, that would be reciprocal. Yeah. So it was part fear, part charisma, part enthusiasm. It was just a, a, a range of different personality traits. Yeah, but it was all managed. Mm. I can remember we were, we were at Ellen Road playing Leeds away. Um, and 
for people who don't know, Man United Leeds or Leeds Man United, that is a hell of a game. Um, in terms of hatred and ferocity between the fans and the players. Um, and the gaffer came in at halftime. Wes was playing. Uh, it would, he would have it, one of his first games that he's played. And the gaffer's come in and absolutely nailed him. Nailed him. Um, Given the hair dry treatment. But in, in the changing room at Ellen Road, you could just walk around the corner or behind a big pillar that they had right in the middle of the changing room. Um, and where I was sat on the subs bench, I could see him smile and laugh to his coaching staff. He turned that on deliberately to get a response from Wes because he knew Wes could handle it. Wes is a hard lad from Longsight in, in Manchester. He can deal with, you know, a 60-year-old bloke shouting at him, no uh -huh. problem. He's, he's dealt with worse. So, whereas other players he would handle differently. Mm. I don't think he'd do that to me. Um, he, he he would handle different players differently. He knew his players. You know, we talk about that with Auburn on the coaching courses where you talk about knowing what makes your players tick. And he certainly did. He knew he knew how to get the best out of his players. Mm. So, how much of an impact, or how much of an impact did he have on you as a young player? As much as a, an impact as he had as a, as a developing character or developing a personality. Again, it's it's the the thing that he did. It was it was almost an indirect um, influence because although I was there for you know five years and and he came around my house as a schoolboy and was instantly giving me my debut, obviously, and um, and helped me later on in my career. A massive influence in that sense, but. I think the biggest influence is the indirect influence of being brought up in the environment that he created. I think that was the thing that has influenced me as a person um, more than anything else. The attention to detail, mm -hmm. the, 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 the highest possible standards, um, the... The, the, the winning mentality, which looking back, I don't think I ever had. And it was only being at Manchester United that it developed in me to an extent. Um, and, and a lot of that might be down to do with, with Eric Harrison, who was um, obviously a right-hand right man of Sir Alex and hugely influential throughout the, the youth ranks. You know, I've, I say to... People, when they ask me about Eric Harrison, Eric Harrison prepared you psychologically for professional football. Um, I don't think you could argue that he's the greatest tactician or technical coach in the world, but he prepared you psychologically better than anyone else I know um, that I've met since. Um, and we all know that's the most important side. Um, so, yeah. that, and that's a massive reason you know, the success that, that the youth system had um, because of the, the way he prepared the players to, to make that step up um, because he knew what the gaffer expected. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he was... He came, we used to call him the shadow because he would he'd be all around you. Um, he'd know everything that was going on. Um, this is Eric Harrison, not, not, the, okay. uh, not the gaffer. Um, and... He he was a milder 
version. Looking back now, he's a milder version of Sir Alex. He didn't have the ruthlessness that Sir Alex had. Um, you know, and maybe that's a good thing because he's working with young men, or adolescents, um, who, who really probably weren't prepared for it. Um, to go straight in and uh, be with someone who is is as ruthless as, mm. as the right person. I love that there is a preparing you psychologically for the journey, especially as a Manchester United player. Because um, it seems today we're getting away from we have high level tactical coaches. We don't have coaches preparing kids and young players for the psychological aspect. What would you say is the number one psychological aspect for a player at that level? Resilience. For me, you have to be able to pick yourself up. You have to... The best players almost show an attitude like they don't care. That they are not affected by their environment, their mistakes. Anything that happens, it doesn't take them away from their concentration and focus on winning the game um, and and that's what the Manchester United environment did at that time um, it, it prepared you in in that fashion um, and you could argue it prepared you but it wasn't until for me personally anyway it wasn't until I was well into my career that the penny kind of drops um, you know if it drops if you like Wayne Rooney, it drops when you're 16 years old. That's brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, but for, for me, it didn't. Even though I had probably the best football education any player could, could want, um, it, it's still, you know, it's still a lot down to the individual to um, whether he takes it on board or not at the time. Mm -hmm. As a young player, you, you were just trying to get through day-to-day -day. like hindsight is or has it moved as a coach has led you to see this or just getting a little bit of a little bit older what what's the difference between what was the young john curtis like <laughs> yeah different well we all change don't we we all, we all change as we, as we get older um I, the young john curtis was probably soft mm. you know and didn't have that resilience um, that comes with really being knocked down and having to get back up again. Um, and it comes with it comes with experience, I suppose. Um, but um, no, but it was it was everything. It was the discipline. It was the we call it hazing, don't we, in the states? Mm -hmm. um, and there's stories about that coming out. It made me giggle when you know someone was telling a story about having to chat up a mop, turn a mop uh -huh. upside down and pretend it's blooming, you know, a film star or something and chat up the mop. That's all the kind of stuff that humiliates you. Um, and it's a process you have to go to because when you're playing in front of 50,000, you know, or 35,000 at an away ground and you make a mistake, the people are going to humiliate you. They're going to do their best to absolutely abuse you. There is no filter there. So those little games that were played, although you look at them today and think, oh, they are terrible, 
they they are so insignificant in what happens in the professional sports arena. Um, and at that time, it was a great way of preparing people, <laughs> ruining yeah. people psychologically, because it would and seeing how they deal with that, because they're going to have to face that mm -hmm. out on the field when they're playing, you know, professionals and in and t terrible away days, you know, leads away. It's, it doesn't get much worse than that for for United. How was feedback delivered? How did you know how you were progressing? You know, was it was it done specifically in terms of meetings? Was it because you got your contract renewed or because you were getting picked? Or how did you know how much you were progressing or if it ever stalled? All of the above. Mm. Yeah, all of the above. You'd get the you'd get the shout. Curtis, gaffer wants you. You know, and you'd be like, "Oh, damn! What have I done?" Yeah, um, yeah, it was whether it was meetings with Sir Alex, whether it was meetings with Eric, um, whether it's informal chats on the side of the side of the pitch. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely, it was a meritocracy. So, um, if you weren't performing, you weren't getting in the uh, in the team. That's that's for certain. So, um, there were no punches pulled from from that standpoint. Um, so you knew where you were when the team list went up, whether you were playing in the A team or the B team, you know, you, you knew where you stood. Mm -hmm. Can you describe the leadership structure at United? Was it a case of seniority, the best players, you had the biggest voices or, or what kind of personality rose to the top of that leadership tree? Yeah, there was definitely a hierarchy and, and the senior professionals were at the very top of that in terms of the pecking order amongst the players. Um, I would say definitely not the loudest. That kind of um, character wasn't always well liked. Mm -hmm. You had to be humble. You had to you had to be disciplined. You had to be focused. Um, so if you were a, um, a bit of a loudmouth would you then be able to represent Manchester United properly? Um, maybe not. Um, listen, don't get me wrong. You know, the guys that, you know, played for you in a Giggsy, for example, you know, he's a character. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd get up and do his Elvis impressions at Christmas parties and things like that. And, and, and all the guys would be great fun. Mm -hmm. um, they'd all be down there when we'd have our court cases and we'd chat up mops and things like that you know all, all, all the all the fun stuff they'd love all that um but yeah it was, there was there was a hierarchy amongst the players and when you first arrived as a first year yts you knew exactly where you stood mm -hmm. and that was at the bottom of the ladder um and you'd have to earn your progression up that ladder um and it, only when you you would established yourself in the first thing which, which I never did at Manchester United that would you you know would you be top of the pecking order um, so uh, yeah it was uh, definitely seniority definitely first team appearances and things like, like when Oli Gunnar first came um, everyone looked at him and he was like this young they called him the baby-faced assassin he was he looked so young when he came in um, and everyone was like well who's this guy um, but it didn't take him long to start banging in goals in the first team, and all of a sudden, you know, he, 
he earns everybody's respect um, and, and, you know, shoots up the pecking order a lot. Mm-hmm. So a combination of those things, I think. When you left United, you know, you played for other big clubs, Forest, Blackburn, Leicester City. What did you, what was, what wasn't there that you missed from United? What did you arrive at those places and say, there's something different here than that wasn't, apart from obviously the trophies? Well, when I first left United, it was to go on loan to Barnsley. Um, and I can remember arriving at Barnsley and it being like an absolute breath of fresh air to go to Barnsley. Mm. And the, the reason I say that is because it, it was like someone had lifted the lid off the pressure cooker and you were like, yeah. relax. It was, and it, it was only when you actually left that you realized how intense an environment it actually was. Now, I'm talking as a young lad. If you were reading the newspaper or you know, put your feet up on a bench or to read the newspaper or something like that, and the gaffer saw you, you'd be in for the high jump. You know, just the, ty- the people wouldn't even understand just the littlest, tiniest things. I can remember a lad, Johnny Phillips, who was my years at YT. The gaffer got him into, into the office, pulled out a, a machete. Johnny Phillips had long hair. Pulled out a machete and chopped a load of his hair off. He said, get your hair cut, son. <laughs> <laughs> Things like this. That, that kind of... That it, you, you, when you walk through the door, you knew you were in... Some kind you didn't know this is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. I didn't realize because you did it every day. Uh-huh. It's only when I left that you thought, Wow, you know, this is this is so much more relaxed and so much easier. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it helped me, it, mm. it certainly helped me as a player because I, I played, you know, Barnsley and Blackburn when I first left United was arguably my the, the, you know, the best period of my career, right? So, a uh, uh... A more comfortable environment, almost got a little bit far more, more, yeah, far more comfortable. Yeah, far more mm. comfortable. Um, less pressurized, less clicky. Um, yeah, just 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 a nicer environment to to working. Uh huh. So what what did you bring to those clubs then? In terms of, did you bring anything from the culture and say, listen, I'll, they need some of this, or did you just go with the flow? Um. I think it's very, even because when I left, I was still a young player. Mm-hmm. I think it's very, very, you have to be some character to, to leave a club and then go into, arrive at another one and start dictating. Particularly, listen, I went to Blackburn or even when I was at, at Barnsley, you know, any club you go to, you're going to in the championship, Premier League, you're going to have real senior guys there. Um, and, you know, they will have come through the systems at, I don't know, Chelsea, Spurs, Arsenal's as well, you know, and found them. So all of these, all of these characters have different, different views, different experiences that they bring to bear in, in on a new club, um, and it kind of it kind of merges all together. To be honest, and it's a bit of a melting pot in the, mm. in the changing rooms. Um, it's it's very rare that you get the environment like we had at Manchester United where many of the players at that time had come through the ranks 
So it was almost every game that you played, 50% of the players were homegrown players. Mm. You had, uh, you know, the the, uh, the Beckhams, Giggses, Butts, Skulls um, that were supplemented with, I don't know, Ben Thorne, Liz, Chris Caspers, Marcells, people like that. Um, and then the foreign guys. Um, and then obviously, you know, Keno and, and people like that. So it was... Yeah, it was always 50%. You know, and it's, I think it's, it's rare to get that at any football club. I don't think anywhere else that I went, there was that percentage of um, you know, homegrown players. What does that environment look like 20 years later for someone who, or players, all that, you know, experienced so many good times, grew up together? We saw a bit of it in the class in 82, but I was curious just to see what it's like do you still do you guys still keep in touch with anyone in that many players in that changing room still have good relationships? No, no, not not really. Well, a I'm in America, which mm-hmm. makes it tough. Um, I work with um, with Mark Wilson, so mm-hmm. he works with me up in up in New York. Who came through the ranks with me he was actually at the FA National School with me as well. Um, so I, I work with him. You know, I've known him since I've been you know 13, 14 years old. Um, you know, and it's it's more the young guys. John O'Greening, Jonathan Greening came over. Um, he was doing st- some stuff at a um, a college in in York, um, trying to recruit American guys to come over and and go to university in the UK. Um, obviously, Wes, people people that were were my peers at the time. Yes, mm-hmm. um, Richie Wellens, obviously now he's gone in doing a great job at Oldham. P- people like that. Um, but in terms of do I ring David Beckham up and say, Grex, how are you doing? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I don't. But if if you see these people, you know, they're, they're always, hello, how are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. what's been going on? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's all, it's all nice and as, as you'd expect, you know. Yeah. You yeah. Know, I, I do, I've been on, I did my A license with Nicky Butt and um, Phil Neville and. So you know you, you bump into them um, on the uh, on the coaches. Like yeah. Those that are still in the game, anyway. Yeah. So on that subject, why did you want to? Why did you move on to the coaching side? Was it was it the passion for the game? Was it what you picked up at United about that culture development, or what was the what was the bug that brought you back? Kept you in? as a as a as a player, as a young player. Certainly, I never thought I would go into coaching. Um, but I think when you come to the end of your career, um, you think to yourself, wow, th- this is all you know. This is all you have done all of your life. You know, I went to the national school, like I said. I left home at 14 years old to play football. Um, everything about me is, is about football, professional football. Um, so to change that and say, right, I'm suddenly going to be a second-hand car salesman or self-double glazing <laughs> or something. It's, I don't think you could do that. I, I think it would be too much of a shock. Um, and it's only later on in your career that you realise that. So I, when I was at Forest, I started doing a little bit of coaching um, and really enjoyed it. You know, I really I started coaching at Notts County and um, did the 12s and then the 16s and... Um, was pretty good at it, you know. I I enjoyed it. I progressed through my licenses. Um, people told me I was good, which is always nice. Um, and then, you know, kind of just went from there. Um, 
I said to myself when I went to Australia to play, because um, you know I, I probably spent the last three years of my career I was playing professionally and coaching, so that was a, that was a nice overlap to have. Mm-hmm. And you know I said to myself when I went to Australia, I said right, well let's spend the next decade trying to um, teach yourself to be a coach. Mm-hmm. Let's travel. Let's go to Australia and, and, and see what it's all about there. Obviously, I've done a bit in England prior to leaving, coaching Australia for the year that I was there, finished playing in Australia and came back to Europe, went to Italy for 12 months, coached in a soccer school in Italy. Right. I've always loved Italian football um, from the, you know, the great AC Milan mm. teams of the late 80s and early 90s. And then um, fell on a job, really, in America more than anything else. Um, my wife wasn't happy with Italy and living in Italy and, and the way things were going there. So um, I looked for a role in America and, and then the Everton America role came up. Um, I spoke to some guys that, that I knew actually at Everton in Liverpool and um, interviewed for the job in Goodison Park and came to America mm-hmm. um, as the technical director of Everton America and a you know, been here ever since, and and thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm. It's been uh, it's been a, been a fantastic experience. Because usually, sometimes, you know, that someone being involved in professional football, especially someone who's who's played at the highest level, sometimes it it takes a little bit out of them. Sometimes they develop a form of a little bit of a cynical side of the view of the game. Um, yeah, hasn't hasn't happened to you, obviously. Or no, hasn't. I'm not bit. I'm not bitter and twisted just yet. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, listen. I think it's about, about the game. The game's honest. Mm. If, if you're not good enough, listen. I started at Manchester United and ended up at Northampton Town. <laughs> you know, that's that's hell of a drop. Um, if if you can't if you can't look at yourself and accept that, and it, you know, the, the funny the funny this is the funny thing. I was probably a better player playing at Northampton Town than I was when I played for Man United. Right. The dif- the difference is the game changes. The game changes every year. It gets better and better and better. And these lads who can play in the at the highest level for fifteen years, twenty years, they they have to constantly either morph and change the way that they play, um, or constantly improve. Um, if you don't constantly improve, you get left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I didn't. I improved. I just didn't improve fast enough as, as mm. you know, as fast as the game. And I think people who look back and think, oh, you know, and do get bitter and twisted, um, I think they, they kind of lack that bigger picture view mm. uh, and they're a little bit polarised. Yeah, awareness. Yeah. Um, if you could take one aspect of your, your path, youth development path and transfer it, bring it over to the US, give it to these kids over here in the in the youth soccer landscape, what would it be? Coaching. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to have, even from a very young age, 11 or 12 years old, when I first started, you know, mingling with professional clubs, um, people working with me who knew what a professional footballer looks like when he's 12 or 13 years old because there is no or has been no pathway here in the states 
there aren't many people who know what a professional football player, a successful professional footballer looks like when he's 12 or 13 years old. Mm -hmm. Now, it's always a bit of a guess. Anyway, you can never be 100% certain. Um, but the people that I worked with um, and was lucky enough to work with knew what it took to become a professional player, um, knew the traits that players needed to be able to progress through the system um, and could pass on that knowledge to me. Mm-hmm. If people don't know what is required, then how can they possibly pass that knowledge on? Um, they can't. So um, I think if we had that in the States, um, it, w- it would revolutionize things. Um, you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the college game. It's the, um, the finished article at 17, 18. Um, and you are so far from the finished article mm-hmm. at 17, 18. It's untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that, you know, last three or four years of your um, development that is really, really critical. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, that's sorely missed over in the States as well. That resiliency that you talked about earlier being one of the main qualities, how do you do that? Or how do you bring that to a um, comfortable middle-class American player? It's a million-dollar question, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You've, got to, you've certainly got to take them out of the comfort zone mm-hmm. um, and get them to places. One of the things that I do with the programs that I run, I take kids abroad, um, you know, and they get a lot of smoke blown where, they sh- where it shouldn't be blown. Um by parents and coaches who think they're the best thing since sliced bread. Um, and then you take them to play Mansfield Town on a Tuesday night in, in Nottingham somewhere, um, and they get torn apart. And then they're like, wow, this is a League Two or conference team with players who have been cast off from um, Nottingham Forest, Derby County and Notts County, um, found their way here. Mm-hmm. Um but look what they've done to you. And you think you're good enough to play for Chelsea. Not, you've got a long way to go. Uh-huh. Um, so it's that kind of education that I think is required um, for, for a lot of the players. Expose them more to the reality of the game, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Take them, they've got to be taken out of the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to be taken away and shown just how much these people want it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> look at the kids that are coming from Africa. You know, mm. there's a difference between want and need. Um, and and these these people from you know poor backgrounds in Europe and you know Africa and they need mm. they need it. Um, and there's not many American kids who can say that. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant, great way to finish it, John. Thanks so much for your time. Um, hopefully get you on another time maybe thanks so much to John for his time and his insight there I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did and um, big takeaway for me was just the the level of influence that Sir Alex Ferguson had at that club in Manchester United went from the very very top to the very very bottom and you know, if you can, you can call it control or you can call it influence or impact, whatever it is, but that takes an awful lot of work, an awful lot of character and, and to, 
to put your fingerprints on the youth development, to put it on the first team, to influence referees with stoppage time, everything that that man seemed to do in, in that era um, was just passion and energy and work and, and it's phenomenal to listen to someone who has experienced that firsthand. So thanks so much to John. That's what we're trying to do with these podcasts is to, is to just get an inside look at people who have worked under, played alongside, worked alongside um, the very, very best in the business and, and how that then can impact, how we can use that to benefit and impact the next generation and the current generation of coaches, next generation of players and um, plenty of talking points in that for sure. So hopefully you've enjoyed that there. Please, please, if you did, give it a like or, or tweet or take a screenshot of it, tweet it, uh, put it on Facebook, whatever it is. It's just trying to get as much um, of a word out on the podcast so far so if you did enjoy it please shoot me a message tell me what you thought any talking points please let's go well uh we, we can start it on facebook twitter whatever it is so thanks so much we have another one coming soon we'll try and get as many of these out as possible in the next few weeks and uh, thank you for listening to the modern soccer coach podcast for more coaching topics sessions and resources Head on over to Coach Kernine on Facebook or visit the website at www.modernsoccercoach.com.